Let's all pray. Father, once again, we, as we are here before your presence, we acknowledge that you are here, but also we acknowledge your authority in our life and the authority of your word. And Lord, as we uh, look into your word, we, we ask for an outpouring of your spirit so that the truth of your word will, will uh, touch us and will, will change us. It is the only thing that will transform us, Lord. But the, the Holy Spirit will touch everything about us, Lord. Our heart, our emotions, our minds, that we can comprehend somewhat, Lord, and understand and receive the truth as it is, Lord. And we pray that the Holy Spirit also will give the balance of what, what is being said. And we trust you, Lord. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, uh, as I prayed that, I realized you know, no sermon is a perfect sermon. <laughs> and uh, we need the Holy Spirit to, to give us the, just as, as we've been talking about, it takes the spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. So, yeah, so, you know, the last six weeks, at least, I think, we've been uh, discussing the, the last intimate moments between Jesus and his disciples. Mainly, we, we've been going through the gospel of John chapter 13 all the way to chapter uh, 21. And uh, the last two weeks we talked about the restoration between the badly broken relationship between Jesus and, and Peter. And we, we looked into how actually that re uh, restoration came into, in, into, into, uh, into place. And, uh, and out of that, that, that discussion, we, the, we raised the question that, you know, is reconciliation possible for every broken relationship? Right? And we talked about it last week. And we, we, we concluded that forgiveness and, you know, forgiveness is guaranteed. Every disciple of Jesus needs to forgive people, doesn't matter what it is, whatever the offense is. But, however, reconciliation is not a guarantee. Neither is trust. And uh, I gave, gave an example. If, if, a, if, if a child's been, been uh, sexually molested by a member of the family, and then that child grows up to be an adult, and then became a disciple of Jesus. Forgiveness is part of it. He has to forgive the, the member of the family, but will he trust that person? Not necessarily. And we also concluded that the quality and the, the, the success of reconciliation is highly determined by the quality of our repentance. Right? And because uh, Paul said, now that we have been justified, means we've been forgiven, we have peace with God. There's reconciliation between us and God. And we justify it by faith. How that faith is expressed is through us acknowledging the price that God pays for our sins and also, and also admitting that we have sinned against God. 
So that's why repentance is very, very important. And uh, we did that. We are uh, reading from Second Corinthians chapter five, verse sixteen to twenty-one, and what we learn from that, the way the way of the way God reconciled the world, that you know that we, we talked about the two parties, the offended and the offender, and it is interesting, scripturally, as we read Second Corinthians five, that God, as the offended, initiated the process of reconciliation. Often in a, in, in human relationship, when we are offended, we wait for the other guy to initiate because he's wrong or she is wrong. She owes me something. She needs to begin the, the process of reconciliation. No, actually, biblically, God said, I'm as the offended, I initiate the process of reconciliation because I forgive him. Isn't that interesting? All right. So, in, in, I think I'm in a statement. I mean, they're big statements, but I think it's true. In other words, the, the, you know, the, the quality of, of uh, reconciliation is determined by the quality of our repentance. No repentance, no reconciliation. That's it. And also the quality of our you know, of reconciliation is also determined by how we build the relationship. And I, I, I define Based, you know, based on the relationship of Jesus and the disciples, that if we can define relationship, is, it is partnership in the pursuit of the purposes of God. That's what it means. Because if I base my relationship, the well-being or, or the success of my relationship, based on how I make you feel or how you make me feel, we're, we're done. Because there's some point I'm gonna I'm gonna annoy you. I'm gonna I'm talking about any kind of relationship, even in marriage. There's something about my, my personality that really will, will grate on you. Some things I, I might be doing things that's stupid and frustrates my wife. Like for example, I am so disorganized. That's frustrating, and she is very particular and very like details, and I can't handle it. But you know what? There's a higher, there's a higher purpose in relationship where, yeah, when, well, because we build this because, you know, we know we're building a family, we're, we're pursuing the purposes of God, and I value her input into the relationship. So when I get frustrated, I just say, my love. <laughs> There's only you in my life. The only thing that's right. My name is Bram Vendros. You know? My city is at the back there if you don't buy it. Now you know what I said to my wife, if I grow up, I want to be, I want to sing like with the Vendros. So, yeah, we have to have the right perspective and what relationship is all about. And also, the next thing is not just understanding what relationship is all about, but also understanding and have the right perspective of the other person. I see my wife as my beloved wife and all those things, but I see her as a partner in the pursuit of the purposes of God. 
And I value her gift. I make room for her gifts, like all those things. That's, we've been married for 38 years. I always tell people, your marriage will never be perfect, but you're perfectly made for each other. <laughs> this takes a lifetime to figure it out. <laughs> and you know what? Whether you, you believe it or not, it's probably the best part of marriage is understanding, learning, growing into understanding each other and make room for each other. It's fantastic. It makes you a bigger person, makes your partner a bigger person. So here, let's talk about Jesus here. Jesus and relationship. We all, if you're, if, you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a believer, we, under, we have this understanding that Jesus is God, became a man, right? So, as we talk about Jesus, this is my thing, okay? As the God who became a man, a perfect man, who embodied truth, love, and peace, and every other virtue that you can think of, you'd think a man like this should never have problems with the relationship, right? <laughs> He's a perfect man. He's God. He is what love is. In other words, no, you shouldn't have any problem with the relationship with anybody. You're God. Well, let's see. His relationship with his family. His family thought he was a madman. <laughs> you don't believe it? Mark chapter 3, verse 21. It says there, after selecting his disciples, Jesus selected his disciples, he went into a house. Many people followed him. They couldn't even eat. So they just sort of hung around. And then it says in verse 21, and when his disciples heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. A raving man of a person. That's his family. And let's look at even his own community that he grew up in. They rejected him. As a matter of fact, when you read uh, Luke chapter 4, his first sermon from Isaiah chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and then he started to preach he started to expound the scripture of Isaiah. At the end of his sermon, they want to throw him off the cliff. That's not a very good start for anyone's ministry. <laughs> Especially in your own hometown. You know? <laughs> like, as a matter of fact, his, his own people said in uh, John 2020, they call him, he is a raving man demon-possessed, and all those things. The re religious leaders, they hated him. I mean, you know. What about the people closest to him? His disciples. As a matter of fact, people who are close to, to, to Jesus, not just the 12, but there are other people, his followers. Remember when he sent 70 people? There's 70 people with his disciples. So his followers, 
in John chapter 6, after he, he preached this massive sermon on the subject of him being the bread of life, and he started saying crazy stuff to the Jewish community, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, like, can you say that to the Jewish community? Like, you know, what, the cannibals now? As a matter of fact, in, within the law, the Jews, they, they cannot have, you know, blood in their, you know, in their meat. They have to drain the blood, blood out completely before they can eat that meat. Then Jesus came and said, no, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not safe. Like, you know, really? So at that time when Jesus thought that, it says in John chapter 6, many of his followers started to leave him. That, I'll take it, that's from us, all the assemblies people. At the end of his ministry, he was left with the 12 disciples. And even then, you talk about relationship, one of them betrayed him, and the other one disowned him. <laughs> so with all that, let's, let's, let's assess Jesus on face value. Within the context of our contemporary, what successful leadership is all about, what, what, what as success leadership in the church, like, you know, contemporary church, Let's assess Jesus. On face value, I would say to Jesus, Jesus, as a leader, I'm sorry. There's something wrong about your leadership style here. <laughs> your track record is pretty bad. You began with 5,000 people and it ended with 12 people. That's not a success, a successful kind of leadership. Even then, out of the 12, one betrayed you, one disowned you. On face value in ministry, Jesus, you fail badly. Okay, let's forget, forget, forget Jesus, forget the, the ministry side. Just on personal basis, your, your own community don't like you, your family think you're, you're crazy. There's something dysfunctional about you, Jesus. <laughs> you know? You're dysfunctional. Okay, what's going on here? Could you imagine if, if people assess you like that? What would you do? What would we do? Let's perform better. Let's strategize. How to make our organization better. Let's do all this crazy stuff. Let's put a show and make people feel good and feel entertained and feel... Let's just forget this discipleship stuff. Let's build a, a community that people feel good when they come to church. If church is all about you feeling good and never confronted with the truth of the word of God, then I question whether you really are true disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus defines it. What discipleship is all about. He said to, in Matthew chapter 20, 28, he said, Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and then he went further. He said, teach them to observe and obey everything I've taught you. As a matter of fact, 
I would want to, you know, maybe next week. Let's teach us everything that Jesus asked us to do. Let's do Sermon on the Mount and just go for it. <laughs> Obey everything. It's not about feeling good. Oh, I can feel the presence of God. That's great. You go out of here, you break the laws. Like, really? What's, what's that all about? You know? I've heard people say, you know, I feel God is saying this, I feel God is saying that. As a matter of fact, I was talking to, <laughs> I was talking to somebody. He loves the Lord. And then he, he, uh, he's a businessman. And he said, Bram, I feel like God talks too much. <laughs> yeah, God just talks too much. I said, what do you mean? He said, because all these, these guys that work for me, he's a businessman, you know, do all this good business. All these Christians that, that come to my, to my factory, factory and talk to me, they said, God says this and God says that. And then I look at the way their, their decisions like, really? And he said, that's why I conclude, maybe God talks too much. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I see what God says to them to the result of their, their decisions like, I scratch my head, it's like, you know. <laughs> so, how do you build relationship? Okay, so this, I, I want to see how Jesus managed and handled relationship. I want to say this. Relationship needs to be managed. Based on that definition that relationship is partnership in the pursuit of God. And this is how Jesus handled the relationship. First with his family. What he defines what family is. You know, we read the scripture before, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when they came, they want to take over. Because they, they're thinking about Jesus, you're, you're losing it. We have to take over it. What's going on here? And 10 verses later, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says that his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them. Who are my mother and my brothers? What's the answer? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, He are my mother and my brothers. Or whoever. Everyone say whoever. That's right. That means me, that means you. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and mother. It is about God's will, God's purpose. So, the first step that I noticed, the way Jesus handled relationship, knowing all this conflict in the relationship, he defines it clearly. What family is. And at the next level, he defines what friendship is. 
Let's go to John chapter 15, verse 12. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no man than this then, that someone who lays down his life for his friends, and then he defines what friends is, the concept of friendship. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I want you to underline that, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Isn't that interesting? In the partnership, in our partnership in the pursuit of God, then we have to sort of reevaluate what friends are. I mean, you know, time's too short. Some friendship could be a waste of time because they're dragging from the will of God. They pull you away from the will of God. It's crazy. So he, so the first step he did, he, he clearly defines what, what relationship is on a different level, family, friendship, and all those things. And then the next thing is what Jesus did. He created different spaces within the relationship. Different spaces within the relationship with people. The first space is the crowd. He met their needs. He fed them, 5,000 of them, and then 4,000 of them, you know. When they seek, he healed them, but they were the crowd. And level one. And then he, the next level, is what is called the followers. Now, as we go to uh, the, hopefully next week, the, the Sermon on the Mount, we think because Jesus standing on the mount, he was addressing the crowd. No, actually, when you read Matthew chapter 5, it says, from verse, chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, Jesus called the disciples. He said, I will make you pieces of men. And then, and then it says, in, immediately after that, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, when Jesus saw the multitude, he went up to the mountain, and then he sat down. And it says, when he sat down, his followers came to him, then opening his mouth, he said, blessed, 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 blessed. So the, the scene that I, I read from that thing is like the focus of the teaching was to the disciples. Yeah. As a matter of fact, here's the thing. When you read Mark chapter 4, when Jesus gave the, the, the parable of the sower, you know, you know, you know, some of you are familiar with the parable of the sower, the sower sowed the seed. He, you know, after teaching, and then, and then it says that 
in verse 9, Mark chapter 4, verse 9, he sat down and it says, when he was alone, his disciples came to him and then they, they asked him, what is the, they're asking about the parable. What is the meaning of the parable? And it says, I think Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, to you has, have been, you know, have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but for, to those who are outside. Everybody say outside. How will you give them in parable? In other words, Jesus actually drew the line between the outsiders, the crowd, and the disciples. There's a different space that he provided. The crowd, now he gave another space for his followers, the disciples. Out of these followers, remember John chapter 6, many of them left them. He left with the 12. So first is the crowd. Can we have the, uh, the uh, PowerPoint there? Right, look at that. I'm sorry for my PowerPoint skills. I mean, that's, that's the best I can come out with. Right? <laughs> so uh, every group of people belong to a, a certain space. So Jesus began with the crowd and then and then the the twelve the twelve disciples you have the followers and then there's a closer relationship then there's a different space that Jesus gave to three people. And the names are Peter, John, and James. Peter, John, and James. And I want to say this. It's, it's interesting because to these three people, Jesus showed his vulnerability. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. This is the end of Jesus' ministry. And remember, we, we, we uh, talked about John chapter 13, the intimate moment. It was Jesus and the 12 disciples where he washed their feet. But now, we come into a place that even more intimate moment. And it says that John chapter, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went into a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Okay? And verse 32. And then he took with him Peter, James, James and John. And listen to this. And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, to these three people, I'm going a little further. He fell to the ground and prayed that if it's possible, you know, we all know the prayer. But in the Gospel of Matthew, as a matter of fact, it says that he said, I am so distressed even to the point of death. But he shared that with, with these three guys. I think it was in the Matthew chapter uh, 26. 
Pastor Marvang, it says here in verse, 30, verse 34, he said to them, he said to them in Mark chapter 14, verse 34, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. What am I trying to say here? Sometimes in relationship, we don't create these spaces between people. Especially when, they, when you're in, a, in, in, in this setting. When we, and I, I remember talking to somebody, you know, in, in friendship, we need to be vulnerable to people. I said, well, it depends. I cannot be vulnerable to just to anybody. There are people that might not be able to handle my vulnerability. But I can be vulnerable to absolutely to my wife. On every day. And I'm sorry, but you wouldn't have that privilege as he would. Now here's the, here's the key to, to relationship. The wrong people in the wrong space is when you have high, uh, what do you call it? Uh, in relationship, high uh, maintenance in relationship. High maintenance in relationship because you place people in the wrong space. I'm gonna say this. How many here that that has come to Jesus, even though your family is not part of, you know, it's not, a, it's not, they don't believe in Jesus. How many? Okay. Often, you know, I don't know about your situation, but I, I hear many stories. I've been in ministry, I've heard so many times. And then you would say something that you believe is your conviction, right? And guess what? Your friends, your family would say, nah, that's not going to come from me. I know who you are. Like, you know, they're totally undermined what God is doing in your life because they, they don't know what God is doing in your life. So, because, do you know what we call that? Familiarity. And you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Do you know that? So they devalue what God is doing in your life because they don't have the discernment, spiritual discernment. Now, so often, you know, how close... Who belongs to this, that space? Like that, that dot in the middle is me and my wife. Nobody belongs there. As a matter of fact, in relationship, even outside, outside our Christianity, people brought in into that, that different space, in the wrong, wrong people in the wrong space, that's when trouble happened. I'll give you an example. A CEO having a secretary his PA, and he, he would bring her into that spot where only belongs to his wife, where he started to show his vulnerability, you know, share his heart, what he's, he's going through. The only thing that only his wife allows to hear, guess what? Affairs start to happen. Well, that's what happened. And in leadership, often, you know, here's the thing. The closer people in, as a, okay, let me say, let me give you, as a pastor, what do I do with spaces? Who belongs to, this, to the closer thing, to the closer to the space to me? How do I determine that? I determine by spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Why? 
Why? Because people come to church, they hear me preaching like this. Wow, thank you, we enjoy your sermon. You know, you know, people hear the way that I minister. So, man, I love the way you move in the power of the Holy Spirit, blah, 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 right? But when they come closer to us, guess what? They start to see our humanity, whether you like it or not, there's a human side of me. Is that okay? <laughs> now, lack of spiritual maturity will cause you to fail to make a distinction between the, my humanity and the work of grace that God has placed in my life. So if I brought you in as an immature person into that circle, and all of a sudden you get overwhelmed by my humanity, it's not fair on you. Because you're not mature to handle that, you cannot make that distinction. Yeah, I'm human, but I'm still, the, the Spirit of God still works in me. And I'm still working in surrendering more to God, and I still try to sort out all the stuff and, and really be, be faithful to God. And lack of the maturity will cause you to what? To be offended. You see? It's like, oh, wow. And you get offended, and you start to leave the church. Not only leave the church, you start talking about Pastor Brown. I mean, that's not fair on you. Let me say this. I can say all this because I've done that. I've done that. And it's not, not fair for those people. And I'm going to say this. What is spiritual maturity? That's a good question, isn't it? As you read, as I read the, the, the Paul's letter to, to, to the church at Corinth, and then in the first chapter he said, I thank God, he, so Paul, typical Paul's letter, he thanked God for, he said, you lack nothing when it comes to speech, knowledge, and all those spiritual gifts, you lack nothing. That's what he said. Only up to chapter, only up to verse 4, verse 5, then he started to address all the issues <laughs> in, in Corinthians church. All the issues. And then when we arrive in chapter, chapter 3, Paul immediately, immediately said to them, in chapter 1 he said, you lack nothing in spiritual gift, in knowledge, in all those things. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, however, I cannot address you as spiritual people and as mature people, but only as babes, as really fleshly human beings. So I want to say this, Spirit, spiritual maturity has nothing to do with spiritual gifts. Just because you can prophesy, it doesn't mean you are mature. Just because you can preach, just because you know the word of God, it does not mean Anything doesn't say anything about your spiritual maturity. You know what, what, what spiritual maturity is? The absence of self. It's that simple. The absence of self. Because that's what happened with Corinthians. In the communion, they blew in the communion. They look after themselves. And the poor couldn't eat. 
in the Tatami community. And you know, in the, in the uh, exercising the spiritual gifts, they couldn't care less, they're just speaking Tamil, you know, to people, they're they so caught up in their gifting, they forget. And Paul said, it's about building the church, it's not about you getting spiritual. It's not you about you experiencing this personal, whatever, amazing as it is. It's about building one another. Okay, let me say this to you. The single girls. Huh? <laughs> They're out there somewhere. If you want to find a good man, find a man that self is the last thing he will think of. Find a man that can actually will put you first. In everything, in everything. Who would actually make space for you at his own peril. Now that's a good man. Let me say this. I like this. You can write this down. This is the most important thing of every sermon. <laughs> okay, everybody, listen to this. A man wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. <laughs> I'm sure it's somewhere in the scripture. <laughs> Gospel according to Brown, you know. <laughs> Self-interest is never attractive. You see that in people. You'd be standing in queue at, you know, take out. There will always be somebody who's trying to cut, cut the lines, like, oh, right? And you know what? To me, it's like, and one lady said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, she, she had a good reason. She was, her hand was like this. She was like cutting in front of me. She said, I'm really sorry. I said, do you need me to give you a hand? It looks like you're very uncomfortable. And she said, no, I'm okay. And then she went to the checkout and she didn't know where her wallet was. <laughs> she was like, oh, I'm really, she was apologizing. And I said, you know what? Life is so hectic. Can you just make it easy? <laughs> like, and she was so thankful. I said, just take it easy. Life's Hectic as it is. Let's just enjoy our time here. And uh, you know, people need that. People need that kind of just, you know what? Don't take yourself too seriously. My wife keeps telling me that. <laughs> Do you know what I, what I love about the Australians? You know, many, many a true blue Australian, Aussie. Yeah. One thing I love about the Aussies, they know how to laugh at themselves. Not true. Coming from Indonesia, I'm too, I'm too serious taking myself, you know, I'm too serious, like, take myself seriously. Like, I have to argue over every point. Now, especially be having, you know, I, I, I've sort of have a tendency as a teacher, so I like to sort of go from point to point, and it's like, and I said, bro, can you just forget that? <laughs> 
And then when I start to learn to love it myself and, and not taking myself seriously, I start to enjoy it. I enjoy everything. You laugh at everything. Don't you laugh at me? <laughs> Just laugh at me. Yeah, she laughs at everything except for my jokes. <laughs> my love, there's only you in my life. Look at Valley. The only thing that's why. That's Luther. I hope you don't go home thinking of that song. I want you to think of my sermon, right? <laughs> but you know what? Whether you're married or you're not married, it's the same principle. And I want to say this to, to both men and, men and women. Before you get married, and if you see self is so strong in a man, and you think, when we get married, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change. No, they get worse. <laughs> I mean it. Why? Because the whole familiarity thing. Because now that, you know, we're so close, what happened is they're undermining. It's very easy to do. Oh, yeah, I know you. Well, that's just you. That's just you. You know, have you heard that? Now, here's the thing. In a close relationship, because she has a special place in my heart that no one has, she has the most potential to hurt me in every little thing that anybody can. Because I've brought her, me, her, her, brought her in, into my heart, in that place that no one can have. That means she can do that. That's why in marriage relationship, you have to be even very careful in how you say things. Now, I'm not saying you're gonna be perfect all the time, but remember, no reconciliation without repentance. Repentance in the relationship means when I offended her and to have that reconciliation, I have to acknowledge the price that she paid for my offense. Honey, I know that hurt you. That's, that's, I mean, how hard is that? Honey, I know that hurt you, I'm sorry. And you know what? One of my biggest things that I, I'm trying to conquer is having to be right. <laughs> Even that, I have to give up. I have to lay down. Even when I'm right, I have to lay down. When that happens in, in, in us, and in, in our friends, and our wives, our, our family, and churches, that's why we, we cry for community, but you know, we, we, we sort of on a level, so like, a, yeah, yeah, you and me, hi, see you later, hi, see you later, let's have a cup of coffee. But there's nothing deep because everybody's too scared to go deeper because somebody's going to get hurt somewhere. However, if you know how to manage the spaces, we can go deeper. We can go deeper in our relationship. Not just community, but deeper as disciples of Jesus. For example, Calvin, oh, he's so mature, spiritually so immature. Guess what? I can make room for that and... and we talk, we build each other until he comes to the point of, wow, you know, I can see the growth in you and bring him, him even closer and closer. 
The point of this phrase is not because you're immature, I'm going to keep you like that all the time. No, no, no. Understanding that, that's where you are at. I'm going to spend time with you. And if I can't do it, I'll get someone else to do it. So guess what? So I can, at some point, bring you into that circle. Jesus didn't make himself vulnerable to the disciples on day one. They journeyed after three and a half years. It's a result of him laying down his life for those guys and imparting to them to speak the truth. It's a journey. All right? Let's all stand up. I hope husband and wife this speak say something to you. Somebody, you know the Bible says the husband is the head of the wife. Just like Christ is the head of the church. You know, when you start to read scripture like that on a, on, a, on a wedding day, people don't read those scriptures anymore because, because it's politically incorrect in this gender, gender fluidity. It's like, it's an irrelevant scripture. Really? If it is the scripture from God, then it has to be relevant for any generation. But because people don't, people don't take the time to read it in its right context and in, in all those things, like Paul wrote, you are the head of Adam. And she's the neck that turns the head. No, no, that doesn't mean that. <laughs> no, my wife is not the neck that turns my head. She's the, the object my head gladly, delightfully turns to. But here's the thing. Uh, Paul said, you are the head, just as Christ is the head of the church. You submit to him. But here's the thing. You young people, the, the millennials, you guys, this is the beauty of that scripture. He said, as you submit to you, okay, and here's what he said. You, love word, as what? As Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? Laying down his life in Ephesians 5.22. How does Christ love the church? Laying down his life with her and then washing her with the water and the word. Right? Until she becomes blameless, spotless, holy, and presentable before God. So what Paul is saying is this. As I put you together, God puts you together, you actually need to love her into wholeness by laying down your life for her. When I read the scripture, I thought, I'd rather submit than do that. Like, you know, it's easier to submit. But for the husband, the way Christ loved the church. Let me ask you girls, okay? If you can find a man who would lay down his life, the way Christ lies down his life for the church, 
and love you into wholeness. Pretty much what Jesus, uh, what Paul said, Christ loved the church until the church becomes what the church is meant to be. So if you can find a man who will love you and deny himself, lie down his life for you, until you become what God wants you to be, what you're created to be, this might, I'm going to ask, is there a problem submitting to such a man? Would you submit to such a man? I don't think there's a problem. You know? The Bible is amazing, isn't it? God is amazing. God is good. Let me just pray for you guys. There are people here have issues in a relationship, maybe in your own family with your parents. Maybe husband and wives, maybe even boyfriends and girlfriends, or just normal friendship. The first question you need to ask is come to God and say, God, what is it that I need to let go of? Is there any self in the relationship that needs to be removed? That's probably a simple prayer. Probably the only prayer you need to pray to begin with. And God will give you the rest. Just lay hands on your heart. I'm going to pray for you. There are people here, Lord, with different situations that are named before. Lord, the, the, it's almost like the, the, the purpose of your recreating a new living soul is because you want to see the self to die. Is there anything in us or in our relationship, Lord, that you want, the, the self element that, that you want to remove, Father? I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to every person here. Holy Spirit, speak to, to us, Lord. Our only safety is you. There's only one Savior, Jesus. And that is you. There's only one place where we can draw our life from, draw life and our wellness, Lord Jesus. Not from our relationship, not from our wives, not from anything else. The only fulfillment we will have is in you, Lord. And we surrender everything to you. Thank you, Father. Bless your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. And uh, please hang around and build one another. Talk to each other.